Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. If the 23rd of September election goes as she hopes, Puto Williams could be New Zealand's next Minister for Disability Issues. Puto is a Labour Member of Parliament. Labour, for our international audience, are currently the largest opposition party here in New Zealand, and their preference is to have sufficient votes along with the Green Party to form a coalition government. And Puto also represents the Christchurch East electorate. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, look, it's a real pleasure to be um, speaking with you. And uh, I, I always uh, look forward to the opportunity to um, have a chat and express some views. And, um, yeah, so thank you very much for having me on. Well, well, we'll get really geeky in a disability context. You took up the disability portfolio for Labour, having had some experience within the sector. Can you tell me a bit about what you bring to the sector and what interests you in this portfolio? Well, I come from, um, I guess, a, a long um, history of working in the community, um, specifically community health, community mental health. Um, I was involved with the uh, a disability a residential service, um, a, um, a service that looked after people who had um, uh, phobic disorders, um, and a whole raft of of issues. I've also worked in the family violence uh, arena too and I know that many people who are reliant on carers of which many people with disabilities are, have uh, particular issues with the power dynamics that happen with carers. So I, I come from, I've got quite a broad I guess community background but it all really ties in um, to who has uh, the ability to um, control, um, you know, actually have their own agency and authority to, to control them and have choice for themselves. And I think that's really the important perspective that I bring, understanding how some people are put in positions of, of complete vulnerability due to the fact that they may have a disability or some kind of disorder that leaves them vulnerable. So you have quite a provider focus there. And of course, what's emerged over the years is that disabled people have been shaking off the, the yoke of paternalism, if you will. How do you feel about that division that can sometimes exist between providers and consumers? And how can you serve both of those constituencies? Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Um, the idea that uh, as a provider, you know best. Um, I, I was just in discussion with um, some people I know who were talking about, you know, how um, uh, how people are required if they come into a service, if, you know, if they get service from a particular provider, they have to have a plan and they have to have, um, they have to be working towards these goals. And actually, most of us, we might have goals and we might have plans, but those are ours. Um, you know, we decide what they are and they shouldn't be reliant on um, some provider to, to um, help us set goals and make plans. And um, it should be more about, you know, what is it that you want for your life? Um, how can we support you to do that as opposed to, oh, we've got it, we've got this exercise we need to complete in order to secure funding. It's completely around the wrong way and it's taken the person who, um, you know, who wants to get on and live their life completely out of the process, really. They're, they're a, um, an adjunct to the process and not, not the centre of it. So I think you're right that... Uh, the whole notion that people with disabilities don't know what they need, um, that it's completely, 
you know, we're throwing that out the, the window. And I think that some of the new um, areas of work are showing us that um, we can be secure in the knowledge that people know what they need to get on with their lives. They may need some resource, they may need some support, but they should be the ones that decide exactly what that is uh, and, and have the flexibility to be able to put that in place. Now, that's probably the scary part of the equation for um, government or for um, providers to think, oh, my gosh, you know, um, we're, <laughs> we're kind of letting giving control over to people um, so that they can make decisions for, for themselves. That's kind of somewhere we haven't been before, but it's definitely where we need to be. If people are going to lead fulfilling lives and, and live up to you know, the things that we talk about, choice and um, agency and doing things for themselves, then, you know, people need to be able to decide exactly uh, what it is that they need to do. Um, I, I think with some of the um, the new work, I mean, I've been talking to people who have been involved in the um, new system transformation process that's happening at the moment. And it seems to me that we're getting closer to that place where uh where people can say what it is that they need to fulfil the things that they want to fulfil without um, the providers kind of getting in the way of that process, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm hopeful anyway from what I hear. Um, I'm hopeful that that, that will happen. Uh, the, the, the only kind of proviso in all of that is that when government is in the way of that by being the people that provide the money, that there's often a box exercise that's required um, and we've got to find a, a much better way of delivering to what people need as opposed to um, uh, delivering based on whatever latest terminology, output, outcome, outfit, whatever um, that the government requires. So, so I think we're getting there. Are you in broad support yeah. of the Enabling Good Lives concept, which really I guess you could argue comes from a sort of an ACT Party model where you get this bucket of funding and, and a, a disabled person decides what is in their best interests. They're expected to be more of an informed consumer. That does on the surface seem a lot more empowering, don't you think? Yeah, it does. If, if the intention is true to, to, to that concept, I think that what happens is that government processes and provider processes get in the way and, you know, audits and accountabilities and all of that stuff. And the fact that we do have, we are accountable to the taxpayer at the end of the day, but we need to make that process a lot more organic so that what is, what, um, you know, the, the, the result for the person who uses the resource is actually what they want. You know, we, we get bound up in having um, a, a budget and you must use 30% of this on um, this kind of support and you're only allowed to use 5% on um, equipment. When uh, If we allow people to tailor what they need, um, you know, in order that they can do whatever it is, whether it's go to school or university or get a job or um, travel or whatever it is, um, if we allowed a little bit more uh, flexibility within that system, then for the people who use it, it would be a lot, you know, a lot better for them. They would be able to, um, I guess, achieve what they need to. But it does require um, uh, us to think about, um, as as government or as future government, uh, how do we do? How do we get that balance right so that people get what they need? and that we are comfortable with 
um, the spend of the health dollar or the disability dollar into that space and, and being accountable for it at the same time. So, yeah, it does it does take some thinking. So that's why I think you, you, enabling good lives and the, the, the process that, that uh, people are being engaged in at the moment to review that is very helpful and healthy. Um, but we all know that the you know the proof will be in the pudding and how people use that um, uh, going forward and how useful it is for them. Mm, it's hard to believe, but it's been around 25 years now since we last had a really deep, serious, let's go back to basics discussion about whether disability support services belong with health or with social yep. policy. And yep. some believe that the yep. current model is unduly medical still and that it's insufficiently focused on rights and participation. Is it time to look at that again, do you think, or is the model working okay? Oh, I don't think the model is working okay. And there are lots of disparities within the model in, and inequities which um, mean that, you know, you can you can uh, get some funding from one source and, and it will be at a particular level. But if you if you get your funding from another source, it's at a different level. Uh, people's experiences are, are their experiences and helping them to, um, uh, you know, go on and have uh, the, the kinds of fulfilling lives that they want shouldn't be about whether you come under the health dollar or the ACC dollar or the MSD dollar. It should actually be about what you need at the end of the day. I think uh, our conversations need to be, we really need to seriously examine um, uh, how we feel about um, people with um, disabilities, whether, you know, in my view, uh, and this is my view, I'm, I'm not speaking for, for anyone else. I, I don't think that if you have a disability, you are, you are necessarily sick. So mm. why do you, why do you have a health, um, you know, why is there a health or a medical model? There's no doubt that there are some aspects that, um, uh, that mean that you, you may need some health, um, uh, import, but it, you know, I think it's time to find a different way. I mean, you know, my experience, particularly in mental health, for example, um, <clears throat> where uh, your physical health needs may be perfectly okay, although often they're not, but you, your physical health needs may be perfectly okay and um, you, you, you need some support um, around potentially your, the chemical imbalance that's going on in your brain and perhaps some social stuff. Um, and that doesn't signal to me that, that you are um, unwell medically. So why is it that we, we look for medical responses to that? Um, and there's such a vast range of disability. And, you know, we, if we say that one in four people identify as having a disability and some of it is age-related, um, yeah, I think that our view, keeping it uh, about um, health uh, or about ACC or whatever, is completely, um, it's, it sits next to the argument. It is not the argument we should be having. We should actually just be having uh, the discussion about how can we support people to have, you know, fulfilling lives and what is it that we need to do. And if some of the money will come from health, some may need to come from social development, but we need to think about how we can do that a lot better. Now, one of the issues that I have been discussing, say, within the community space, um, not so much in the disability space, but in the community space, is how do we support communities and NGOs and organisations who've got you know, particular focuses in the community to do better 
given that if somebody walks in the door um, to a community provider or a community service, they don't usually come in that door just with that one thing that that community service can support them with. They usually come in with a whole raft of issues or range of things that um, that they need support with. Now, how is it that um, we would need that person to go to several doors before they actually have um, a, a range of services to support them when we know that if, um, if we tailored the funding better, if we were able to carve through some of the silos that exist, that that person could have their needs met um, at, through one agency, well networked, well linked, uh, rather than having to um, walk through a, you know a whole shopping mall of services before they get their needs met. I yeah. think there's some some opportunity for us to be thinking quite radically and putting the person at the centre and, and trying to figure out how it is that we can get service to that person as opposed to that person having to search for service. Yes, well, indeed, this was discussed when the, the current model was put together some 25 years ago and there was the concept of service coordination where I guess essentially you would have somebody who would act as a broker of some kind to help navigate the labyrinth of all the different service providers and I'm, I'm not too sure what has happened to that over time but it does seem a little bit fragmented funding also for disability support services seems to have evolved haphazardly over more than a century uh, i'm blind and the primary provider of blindness services has been around for over 125 years now and it receives a lot of uh, church and philanthropic funding in the beginning uh, and that's meant that successive governments have thought that the organization can fend for itself say more than mm -hmm. some others because it had a significant fundraising operation but i think and it comes back to your comment about funding earlier in the interview that that ignores to me the important philosophical questions surrounding what disability support services government has a moral obligation to provide and the damage that might be done to the prospects and dignity of disabled people where they have to become charity cases just to get critical services i'd love to see one mm. party in the selection have the courage to put the entire system on the table where nothing is sacrosanct mm. and we look at what's right. What does a decent New Zealand look like rather than what we've always done because it's just evolved that way? Yeah, look, you know, you're absolutely right in, in many aspects and I think that, um, you know, successive governments have, have kind of addressed the problem um, but not really um, celebrated what... what um, what is actually at the heart of this, which is just you know helping people to live ordinary lives, I guess. Um, and we've we've lost we have uh, you know we've completely lost sight of that. And in the in the meantime, we've set up a whole lot of processes that have meant um, that uh, community organisations are in competition with other community organisations. Um, that we've put a whole lot of uh, regulatory barriers around. Um, the ability to operate in an organic and, and kind of collegial and collaborative way. And we've, we've um, really um, systematised um, processes when, when we actually should be looking much more um, uh, at the person and what it is that that person needs because if each and every one of us has slightly different needs. You know, I, I may need to go to the doctor a little more often than someone else because I, you know, I have... I, 
you know, I, I don't, but I might have asthma and I might need to keep on top of my medications and the like. But it doesn't mean that, um, you know, I should only be allocated, you know, X amount of dollars for, for that particular health condition because, lo and behold, my health might change and I may need more or less. But what we've tended to do is, is just make everything very... Um, we've, we've tended to kind of want to slot people into... Uh, compartments and make them sit there and and organizations as well um, we've t- tended to put them into try to slot them into um, uh, into boxes and make them fit a, a wider vision that actually doesn't serve anyone well at the end of the day yeah I, th- I, th- I think the other problem I've, too though is is the charity stuff the fact that you know when yeah. these organizations are competing say, with starving children in Africa and very worthy causes, sometimes you can see the dignity of disabled people being dragged through the mud because they've got fundraising targets to meet these organizations. And that can be counterproductive when it comes to trying to get disabled people employment because if the agencies are depicting disabled people as helpless and in need of people digging deep into their pockets – then yeah, yeah. you know you, you damage the image, um, and and I think the way New Zealanders feel about disabled people and the obligations that they have is something we really need to think about. What government's role is in that regard? I, I was having a conversation with a um, with a an organisation earlier today who uh, one of the roles that they do is support uh, people with disabilities to get into voluntary work as a way to build some skills. Um, and um, building them into uh, employment, into paid employment. And um, they they were remarking about the same kind of issue, um, saying that uh, in order to, you know, support people to kind of uh, build their, their skills, because often it is the um, employer or the, the public at large that have a view of how... Um, um, a disabled person may or may not function in a workplace, and actually, that the workplaces are set up okay. You know, that, that's generally not the issue. It's actually the attitude that um, that is that is the big problem. And you're absolutely right. They, the um, when you extrapolate that out to uh, fundraising efforts, it's um, about chasing the dollar and um, you know the cute puppy or the the sob story does tend to get the the dollar more than um, others and it does create this this environment um, uh, that people believe um, which is you know quite uh, disparaging of people with disabilities who are quite capable of doing many many things um, sometimes with a with a bit of support sometimes not but yeah, we have this very patronising and patriarchal view, I guess. And it was one of the things that I struck um, when I was uh, working in the residential um, service when, when um, you know, people I worked with were asking some very tough questions about themselves and their rights uh, to things like relationship. And, um, uh, and that they were really tough questions to deal with that all the other people who had an interest, you know, whether that be parents or whether that be providers or whatever. So uh, you're right, it's a, brave, it's a brave discussion to be held, but if we are to acknowledge and live up to um, uh, 
you know, the rhetoric that we um, say and talk about with regards to disabled people, those are exactly the kinds of conversations that we need to have. We had a number of questions come in from listeners when we mentioned that we'd be speaking with disability uh, issue spokespeople, and one that came through a lot was this disparity that continues to exist between the more generous assistance that is available to someone who becomes disabled as the result of an accident versus someone who was born with a disability or acquired one due to a medical condition. Now, this actually goes all the way back to the Woodhouse Commission, which was the catalyst for our ACC system, and they recommended that that disparity be addressed over time, it just seems that the reason for this disparity continuing for so long surely is that no party, and sadly Labour included, when in government, considered disabled people worthy enough or electorally significant enough to cough up with the funding and fix this. Why in 2017 do we have this disparity still? Yeah, oh look, I I, I agree with you. I know that um, uh, our policy um, has, has us, you know, um, looking at the issue and making sure we do something to address the, the disparity, and actually, you know, it's an it's an inequity and an inequality that shouldn't exist. And I completely agree. Um, and I don't know why it has taken us so long. I guess it's this, you know, to be um, brutally honest, I guess it is this view that we have about uh, um, disabilities. You know, the the community really, we've got we've got some way to go to. Uh, actually recognise how um, by doing this we actually continue to treat people as unequal um, and that, that this is actually a huge, it's a huge rights issue. It's basically it's the rights of disabled people to be treated fairly um, regardless of which system. You should be able to yeah, you should you should be able to be treated equally um, alongside anybody else, regardless of whether they have a disability or not. When Labour was last in government, it introduced the concept of the disability strategy. That was uh, Ruth Dyson's initiative. I know she worked hard on that. And there has uh, recently been extensive consultation on updating it. There's an acknowledgement that employment and education are critical priorities. That's an indication that the government is listening, isn't it, and that uh, things are on the right track? Uh, yeah, we can do lots more though. Um, I think that uh, particularly in employment, I mean, um, one of the huge inequities with uh, people with disabilities is their income level and um, we've got to do something to address that. I mean, getting into employment is um, is an obvious way to do that, but it can't be just anything. It has to be um, employment that's play, paid at appropriate rates. Um, I'm not a, a, a huge fan of, you know, where we have been in the past around um, around the sheltered workshops. If you if you are employed, you need to be paid the same as anybody else would be. Um, but we also know that uh, with a little bit of support, um, our our community of disabled people can really thrive in the employment area and some of that is around ensuring that we address the issues that our employers have towards people with disabilities and change their attitudes and mindset. Um, so I, I, you know, I know that uh, this current government has, has been looking at uh, programs to deal with that. We need to do a lot more. Um, we need to ensure things like we build up the numbers and the proportion of people uh, with disabilities in the workplace. Now, government has got the ability to take some leadership here. And I know that we haven't, as part of our state uh, sector, we haven't um, maintained 
even a register of the numbers of people that we employ uh, within government who've got disability. Um, we don't keep those statistics. Now, we should, because we should actually be looking year on year of increasing the percentage and thereby not only developing um, our skill as a as a uh, employer um, of opportunity for people with disabilities, but also building up our knowledge to be able to support other employers. And, you know, as government being one of the, the biggest employers in the in the country, it would be really good for us to um, to show the way to le- take some leadership with that. Um, and as I was saying um, to you before, we we should be using things like voluntary work as a way of building up some um, as a way for people with disabilities to kind of build up their uh, their work skills, but also to demonstrate you know their commitment to the wider good of our society as well. So is Labour committing to abolishing sub-minimum wages for people with disabilities? Absolutely. I find the whole process completely abhorrent. In the last 30 years or so, since 1984, I guess, there's been a change to the way that New Zealanders think about benefits. And benefits are now usually seen as a temporary means of support until someone can find work and some disabled people receive a benefit that actually assumes that they will never work. That model, I think, fails to acknowledge that there are significant ongoing costs of having a disability and that if a disabled person who works doesn't have those ongoing costs compensated for, then their discretionary income is actually being depleted specifically because they have a disability. Would you examine a completely non-income-tested benefit that seeks to acknowledge the costs of having a disability? Uh, we haven't phrased it quite in that in that way. Um, we... Uh, yeah, we there's definitely um, some inequity that you talk about, but we haven't actually looked at it in, in this um, round of um, policy discussion in that way. So, um, but I, you know, I I do agree with what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. But it's something that we would definitely need to give some further consideration to. Uh, we do talk about. Um, wanting to do what we can to raise income levels uh, and and support people who are getting into employment. Um, but you're absolutely right. There will be those who um, are uh, forever going to be confined to uh, a fixed income and have those those additional costs. So um, it's something that, look, we would, we'd be more than happy to look at. Um, but it's not something that we've, we've outlined specifically in this policy leading into the um, into this election. How would you rate our current human rights legislation in terms of protecting disabled people from and, re- and redressing their discrimination, say, as compared with how things are going in Australia and the US and Britain, who we like to compare ourselves with a lot? I think we have um, we have a we have some way to go. Um, and, and look, first off, I shouldn't be speaking on behalf of um, uh, people with disabilities. And I think that's that's an issue for us um, heading into um, heading into government that we don't have um, people with disabilities other than Mojo Mathers as a as a member of parliament. 
Um, yeah, why is that? I mean, when, when you when you look at say the UK, yeah. they've already had a blind home secretary. In the United States, there have been blind governors and senators and other people with disabilities. It does seem strange that in 2017, a yeah. progressive party like Labour doesn't have anyone with a significant sensory or physical disability in there. Yeah, I, I know. I look and I I I feel that. Um, and uh, you know it's it's completely inappropriate. I know that when I've had conversations with um, Mojo, for example, about the absolute difficulty that um, that uh, the the process to become an MP, um, you know, it's completely stacked against people with disabilities. There's something as a, a party and as parties, we certainly need to examine. As Parliament, we need to examine. I know the. Um, the uh, the difficulties that Mojo had just in, just to get the right kinds of equipment, um, and, you know those processes are in place and they're better. But you know it's it's a it's a sad reflection on us. You know, um, and I you know apologise. It is a sad reflection on us. It's also an indictment of where I guess a lot of our thinking in, is in society. If we can't get employers to take um, a different view to people with disabilities, you know, if we can't get government to take a different view of people with disabilities, then um, then in terms of human rights, we, we are really right behind the eight ball and we need to do a whole lot better. So um, I think therein lies some of the, the issue. Um, we have, a, within Labour, we have a... Um, a a disability sector, the CURP sector, which advises us on policy. Uh, we we do support candidates to um, to stand in our seats and on our list, but we haven't been successful in getting somebody through to a position of um, actually making it into a winnable winnable position on our list, and that's something that you know we definitely must do must do better at. But the, the party machine's so, to blame for that though right I mean the party machine could decide look there are all sorts of quotas in yep, Labour's absolutely. constitution I mean yep, the yep, 50% does it have to be women um, why why can there not be a constitutional requirement that says look at least 5% or something of the of the party list has to be some uh, people with disabilities and in a in a reasonably winnable position yeah, well, we have had people with disabilities on our list, and I think yes, we, that's right. yeah. we currently do, but they they are not in winnable positions. That, mm. that is the that is the absolute point. So you're right. Um, I can't um, speak for the rest of the party uh, mechanism, but all I can say is that our Kirk sector is working hard to lift the numbers of people with disabilities on our list, uh, which is kind of the first approach. Um, it would be, you know, the next approach really is to get them into positions where. Uh, either as um, you know, they are in winnable or marginal electorate seats to guarantee a position in Parliament. Do you think there might be merit in looking at legislation such as the New Zealanders with Disabilities Act, where you separate um, yeah. disabilities from the human rights provisions and have, I guess, an entity that has the ability to make more binding decisions and 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 exert some level of punishment, such as is the case in Australia, which has achieved has achieved some real success there. Well, what's um, been promoted here quite um, quite strongly is the uh, the accessibility legislation that um, has been promoted in Canada, for example, which um, takes a, a, a slightly different tack and um, legislates for 
accessibility to education, justice, transport um, uh, and the like, a whole range of issues, which means that um, you can be uh, prosecuted for um, breaches of of those particular rights. So in terms of um, uh, access issues, you know, access to justice issues, for example, it, it attempts to really level the playing field. And in, with regards to access to employment, it would require employers to have percentages of um, uh, disabled people or to be work, you know, to have, um, to really um, uh, mitigate or eliminate any barriers they have for disabled people uh, taking up positions within within their workplaces. The, the accessibility um, legislation that's being promoted is something that we would, uh, and you know, co-create in partnership with with um, disability groups and um, and the like over three years, and then um, and f- put the legislation in place, and then require uh, employers and providers and schools and um, etc. to comply and give them about ten years to um, bring their systems into place, and at that point. Um, then monitor how people are doing and make the necessary adjustments or uh, look at how you get people to, you know, if they're not complying, you know, what kind of punishment or um, action needs to be taken at that point. Um, That's something that's been widely promoted uh, by a a team um, called the Access Alliance. I'm I'm not sure if you're um, familiar with them. And they've been asking political parties to sign up to that particular uh, accord. Um, both the Greens and um, Labour have done so. Uh, so that that I I hope goes some way to getting us um, uh, along the road to ensuring that we do everything we can to break down those barriers to um, for people with disabilities to things like you know, justice, education, employment, um, transport, um, and the like. So does that mean that at the end of your next term, you would expect to have some legislation in place that would then be phased yes. in? Is that is that the strategy? Yes. So the legislation would be in place. What would be phased in would be, say, for example, you would require employers to um, get all their processes in place or universities or um, local authorities around transport. You would give them a period of time uh, to ensure that they are fully compliant with the legislation. Overseas, it's been um, something like um, uh, 20 years. We, uh, we're saying that you know, um, using overseas models, you could probably do it within 10. So yes, so three years to write the legislation to make sure that, is, uh, that we get that right um, and then a further 10 years to ensure that it's implemented and embedded. I have the privilege to do quite a bit of travel in the work that I do, and it's remarkable to me that I can go to an unfamiliar city in the United States and get about much more easily than Wellington, where I live. (laughs) Uh, And a lot of that's due to the amount of Braille that's everywhere, the fact that buses announce where they're pulling up, um, a whole bunch of provisions like this. I was staggered to note earlier in the year 
that New Zealand is about to become an even less accessible place because the small passenger transport changes mean that a very hard-fought-for provision, which is Braille on uh, all of the taxis, will no longer be a requirement. It's extraordinary that in 2017, one of the few accessibility provisions we have in this country is actually being removed. I know. I know. It's crazy. It's so simple. Would you reverse that? Uh, yeah, well, there's, um, it just seems if we, if we were able to be in there before, before the changes were, made, were being made, we would stop them from being made. It just seems crazy, doesn't it? Um, and uh, very short-sighted. I have no idea why you would even contemplate, um, it, you know, uh, um, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm not. I have no idea. Have you any idea why that's happening, Jonathan? I have no idea. I, I, th- I think the argument was that, obviously, with uh, outfits like Uber and, and similar, that are uh, essentially private vehicles for hire, that the feeling was you'd be able to use services like um, smartphone apps to get the same information. So you would know, if you if you use Uber, for example, you would know the, um, the license plate of the vehicle that you were getting into in the case of difficulty and that kind of thing. Um, the issue was, of course, that because of the socioeconomic factors at play here, a lot of blind people don't have access to smartphones and they don't have... Uh, Uber, and they're not even in areas where Uber operates. And no. so the provision applies to them too. So they yeah, could try yeah, and get in yeah. a taxi off the rank. You know, blind people do walk about independently. Mm. And so they could get into a, a taxi uh, on, a, on any taxi rank in this country, reach out to find out the name of the company who's driving them and the, the number in case maybe that they're having an issue with their guide dog being refused or something like that. Mm. And the, the driver door may be blank because there will no longer be a requirement for them to have that braille signage. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, and it, if, I think if you are, you know, even with Uber, I think Uber um, have really muddied the waters a lot with, um, uh, you, you know, our, our regulations around passenger transport. And yeah, sure, it's fast and it's efficient and... Um, you know, utilizes new technology and and the like. But any person, any person is vulnerable when they step into it, the car of somebody that they don't know. Uh, whether regardless of it's it's a regulated taxi driver or it's an Uber driver, and to have some comfort that you um, you you know you know who it is that's driving you, or you have the ability to find out how you can make a complaint or do any of that stuff. It's got to be paramount I would have thought and I don't see any reason why even Uber drivers couldn't have that information um, readily available and you're right technology if you use technology um, as a means to access you can quite easily use it as a barrier to access as well if you don't have uh, that technology or the latest version of it so yeah yeah, in the end, we as a society have to make a decision, don't we, about about the costs of doing business in this country. And if we decide that we want to be a truly accessible society, then one of the costs yeah. of doing business in this country, if you're a small passenger transport operator, should be to make it fully accessible to everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. 
there has been a little bit of a campaign uh, over the last little while relating to trying to educate funders about the impacts that this technology has. It's it's a long-standing issue. I remember talking to people from the Ministry of Social Policy back in the 1990s, who and, and a woman from there who was quite senior said, "Well, we're not going to give." Uh, computers to blind people so just so they can surf the net. And of course, a lot of this technology, for people who can see, it's a convenience, it's an easier way of getting at information. But for a blind person, it might be the only way of getting at information, mm. shopping online, reading your bank statement independently with some dignity, uh, a whole bunch of uh, reading a newspaper and just being a part of your community because you can't pick up the print. It, it does seem that we still are in a position in New Zealand where a lot of very serious value judgments are being made about who should be entitled uh, to receive technology. And, for example, you know, look, if an iPhone can help a blind person to identify the baked beans from the peaches and just help them navigate safely and, and that kind of thing, there may actually be savings. If you're looking at it purely as an economic argument, there may be savings in buying somebody a smartphone and giving them all the apps that, that make that happen. Yeah, as opposed to, yeah, employing somebody Expensive to home help, help yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. Well, look, there's a, you know, technology there, technology is the big barrier for many people, not just people with disabilities. Even, you know, there are um, children who don't have access to devices that other children may or may not have. It, it has it is creating a huge divide um, in our society and it's not just the devices, it's the access to um, internet or data or the cost of that. Um, uh, and increasingly our our society is geared more and more towards the, the mobile um, and the ability to have uh, everything on, on one device, you know. I, you know, I, I, I agree with what you're saying about we, we make judgments that aren't based on, um, that aren't really uh, cost just judgments. You know, we might say, you know, it's too expensive to provide this, but actually, at the end of the day, it would be cost effective to do so because it would save us as a society, or would save us as a community, or it, it would, you know, it would. Um, help us grow and develop and all the rest of the things but just in terms of basic rights we should all have the right to operate um, at the same level in the same way and if that means that uh, we should be looking at uh, breaking down the barriers to cost for devices and for internet and the like I think that's something that that we should seriously do because it does really build the inequity into our system when people can't access the same as everybody else. Um, yeah, um, I yeah, I I don't know where our social policy sits with regards to that. I think that you know some of the discussion we were having a little earlier about uh, the resources that people need to um, get on and get on with their lives. Um, when we tend to kind of carve out a bit of you know, resource in terms of funding for somebody. Uh, somebody makes a, a an arbitrary decision about what that might look like, whether that's support hours or respite hours or equipment or whatever. And we don't actually let the people decide for themselves um, what they need and how any any resource or support provided to them should be should be given. I don't yeah. think we trust people enough to know what they need. You know, that, <laughs> that seems to me an extraordinarily. Um, you know, short-sighted because and I know from people that have, um, uh, you know, sought my support 
uh, around their needs or the, the needs of their family members that actually they know exactly what they need. They just want us to get out of their way so that they can get it. And there are these very arbitrary buckets of money that can only be used for very arbitrary things. Um, I run my own company, for example, and that means that I have to buy uh, my own computer equipment as a business expense, which is absolutely fair enough. But one of the challenges I have is that my blindness comes with a progressive hearing loss so it deteriorates Mm. over time it's been about four years now since i last had an update of hearing aid technology and hearing aids are computers essentially these days so four years is a long time in computing terms i don't have cause to access the funding that workbridge has for example because the computer technology i have i it's a business expense somebody has made a decision somewhere that that funding cannot be used for hearing aids, even though that is actually the technology I use that my company can't afford, it's not considered a legitimate business expense, Uh, the lack of good quality hearing devices is impeding my ability to feel safe and independent, and I've just got to wait my turn for, I think it's now six years before I'm allowed to get new technology. It just seems like... You know, you you try and pay your taxes, you try and make a contribution, and some bureaucrat somewhere is making an arbitrary decision. Yep. Yep. I couldn't agree with you more. I have um, uh, cases um, uh, where where families, particularly um, children with special needs, um, as they grow um, and become young adults, that uh, there, there there is some allocation, there is an assessment made of what is actually needed for that young person, there is an allocation of funds, but you can only spend them on specific things. And I've got a couple of um, uh, families that I'm supporting at the moment where if only there was some flexibility in how um, this resource was to be allocated, they probably wouldn't need the whole resource. They just need for some of it to be um, given to them in a different way to support their um, their young people. And I find that... Um, I've I find it hugely patronising, but there's something very wrong when when you cannot have a review um, uh, to to match your needs. Uh, it's it, it is crazy. It is, um, you, you know, it is probably part of the issue that um, we talked about a little bit earlier about who drives this. Is it the provider that drives this, or is it the person? whose needs are uh, attempting to be met that should drive this. And I think we still haven't got that balance right. I think we still have got government and the provider um, driving a lot of uh, what actually should be about an individual making choice for themselves. Um, We certainly can do a lot better in that space. You talked earlier in the interview about the number of disabled people in the public service. I have a feeling it's down, say, from 20 years ago, but I can't prove that. That's just an anecdotal feel that I have. Recently, there was an article published in the New Zealand Herald expressing concern about deaf people not being employed in deaf organisations at a senior management level. Uh, I don't know if you saw that. It was uh, it was an interesting read. Also in the Blind Foundation, the number of blind senior managers has declined sharply over the last 20 mm. years, and they haven't had a blind CEO since the 1930s, even though there's no shortage of qualified, competent candidates. Mm. I wonder whether you would consider some sort of funding sanctions being imposed on some of these big organizations who continue to fail to walk the talk, they decline to employ capable members 
of the constituency they serve at a senior management level because, frankly, a lot of them are seen as troublemakers by the able-bodied people who have hijacked these organisations. I don't think it's going to change unless somebody in government takes a stand. It sounds to me like um, a lot of the stuff is um, about supporting our human rights legislation to get this better, um, it, but take a different, take a much more um, proactive approach as opposed to um, one where we say, you know, you cannot discriminate against somebody because of their disability, actually saying what you should be doing is proactively employing somebody because of their disability. Yeah, because it's uh, very hard to prove discrimination in employment if they simply say, well, there's somebody who was more qualified than you. How do you prove that? And of course, it's that old catch-22, isn't it, that young people have? Well, how do you get the experience if no one's going to give you a leg up and give you a chance? Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. So you know, maybe it's maybe it's time for us to revisit, um, you know, our human rights legislation. Maybe it's I don't know. Uh, can um, when we have community organisations, if we look at their mission statements and um, if we're looking at uh, groups supporting people with disabilities, and if their mission statement says one thing, but they're clearly not acting in that in that way because they aren't. Uh, living and breathing the intent of their um, of their mission statements or their constitutions, you know how do we do that? Um, it's it's a big nubbly question you ask there, Jonathan, and I'm not sure how to how we whether legislation is the is the key. It, it could possibly be. Um, yeah, I, I had thought places like, you know, the Blind Foundation, for example, had a requirement for their governance. Um, Indeed, yes, the, the be, board the yeah. board is elected uh, mainly by blind people, that's right. But that hasn't yeah. really trickled down to an operational level. In fact, in the last 20 years, it's got significantly worse. Yeah, well, I don't really know the answer to that, except to, to say that it looks as though... Um, some of the attitudes that we have, uh, you know, permeating. You know, when we when we talk about representation, I mean, I'm very um, focused uh, also on you know representation of women, for example. And mm. you know, if we look at the numbers of women on boards or in leadership positions, we've actually we've potentially gone backwards in the last sort of twenty or so years as well. We we um, I I don't know really know the answer to this, but I suspect it would lie somewhere in us um, revisiting our um, our human rights framework uh, and encouraging things like um, you know in Christchurch here we uh, were promoting um, being an accessible city. I know that we're probably not really going to live up to that in terms of our rebuild, but you know there are there's opportunities for us to kind of make these bold statements and try and make them happen. And is this where we need to go? Does it, do we need to do much more public awareness about um, access issues um, and around uh, supporting um, people to, you know, to you know, I, I don't know. Mm. I mean, again, I think this, this is, is why this representation is, is, is on why yeah. representation on the inside is yeah. so critical. Because you you look at the Māori Party, for example, and they've been pushing the Fano Order concept 
which is essentially by Māori for Māori, uh, Māori-centric policies. And I just, I just wonder whether there might be some merit in saying, look, if we have contestable funding for the provision of a particular service, we are going yeah. to prioritise funding from organisations who can demonstrably show that their management, the very ethos of their organisation is constituency-driven. Look, you know, I, just as you say that, I think um, if we can if we can say that uh, in government we would require uh, employee, employees of government or um, people contracted to government to pay a living wage, for example, then we can certainly say um, the same kind of, we can certainly pass on the same kind of message that uh, in order to... Um, you know, receive this funding from the government. You must, you must be required to do this. I can certainly see that it would be um, an opportunity for government to take leadership around this. So, yeah. It, while I um, mentioned earlier that in the public service we don't keep records of who is um, who has a disability, and we haven't for some time. You're absolutely right. To take the proactive, positive approach would be to say, um, if you are serving this community, then you are required to ensure that that um, it is staffed and managed by appropriate levels of people from that community. I know we've canvassed a lot of issues and we're, we're almost at an end. I just wanted to close by talking about specifically how you feel that life would be better for New Zealanders with disabilities if they vote for a Labour-led government as opposed to continuing with the status quo. Well, there are a couple of key um, differences, I think, that we are offering um, to not just people with disabilities, but um, uh, the wider population, but specifically uh, around disabilities, our commitment to ensure that uh, we will um, come through with um, legislation around accessibility and follow that through with you know, co-designing um, legislation with the appropriate um, partners um, within the community and then doing something about implementing that legislation uh, and putting it into practice. We're very clear about supporting uh, people with disabilities into employment and actually raising the level of income for people with disabilities who unfortunately um, can um, be at the bottom of our um, of the, the income pile and with the costs um, sometimes that the extra costs that are um, sometimes go hand in hand with having a disability. We know that um, they are um, they, they can be completely disadvantaged over and above other Kiwis. We want to support um, by ensuring that housing is warm and dry and affordable and it actually meets the needs of people with disabilities by ensuring that um, that uh, any new builds that the government does build, particularly state housing. Uh, uh, has a life mark um, accessibility um, uh, uh, quality aspect to it, so it is an accessible home, and we want to retrofit um, other um, housing New Zealand homes. We want to turn housing New Zealand back into the service provider that it was, and ensure that people who can't afford um, housing will always have the opportunity to have a decent roof over their heads, and if people are in private rentals, that they actually uh, have rentals that are warm and dry by um, ensuring that landlords um, fit their homes with insulation and have an appropriate heat source. Um, income is important. We want to make sure we raise minimum wages and that as a government, um, uh, anyone contracted to government will 
be required to um, pay the living wage uh, rather than the minimum wage. Uh, we want to make sure that people can transition from education into university appropriately and that we break down all the barriers that we can around education that they um, that uh, that um, for example we want to make sure that um, students and teachers uh, have access to New Zealand sign language which is one of our three official languages and we want to we want to ensure that that language is able to uh, to flourish um, we know that um, the whole system of special needs support and the resources that are allocated um, should be based on individual needs as opposed to the system um, trying to get the individual to fit into um, into them. So with regards to education, we will be supporting um, a comprehensive review of um, the special needs system. There are lots of other things we really hope to do. Um, just around health, uh, really look at those inequities um, that we talked about a little bit earlier um, and and uh, make sure that if you are... Um, uh, if you have, um, uh, if you come into the system through ACC or through the Ministry of Health, that, that there is no disparity of funding um, through either, you know, whichever mechanism you come through. We're looking at ensuring that we um, uh, make sure that um, 100% of public broadcasting um, meets the needs of um, the deaf and hearing impaired, um, and also that we have visual descriptors for people with um, visual impairments. Is that 100% as well? At, yes, for public broadcasting. Okay. Mm-hmm. We're, we're looking at the cost of that at the moment. Um, we are also wanting to ensure that um, uh, that civil defence emergencies, uh, that we don't leave our people with visual impairment and um, uh, those who are hard of hearing you know, locked in their homes because they are unable to uh, access civil defence emergency warnings. Um, access to justice, we want to make sure that uh, everyone is able to um, access what they need in terms of justice and, and support our disability um, law service. Um, and with regards to transport, we want to make sure that uh, we um, that we uh, implement the recommendations of the Human Rights Commission report, the Accessible Journey, um, and make sure that our public transport networks meet the needs for um, people with disabilities. There's a, there's a few more. I'm really happy to share our policy um, with you if you want. If you are wanting the document, Jonathan, I'm happy to send that to. Absolutely. If it's um, online, we will definitely provide a link to it in the show notes yeah. so that people can click through and have a look at the full policy. Is that that publicly available on the website at this point? Not not yet. We haven't launched it as yet, right. um, uh, and I'm not sure when that. But it'll be soon. So you Excellent. Be able to see that too. And yeah. and the website is of course labour.org.nz if people want to check that out and um and, and take That's a look correct. for when the policy is available. I really appreciate you being so generous with your time. It's been a fascinating discussion, and I I, I know people will have learned a lot. So thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting, on the web at mosin.org.